So Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 14. It says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow, and thy conception in sorrow Thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herd of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And let's pray. Again, Father, we turn to you to ask for your help this morning as we look at your word. We thank you for having a Bible that we can turn to, um, the message that's there, the, the stories, um, the lessons, Lord. And so we just ask for your, your guidance, um, that our hearts would be ready to receive um, what you have for us, Lord, and that you would guide my, my thoughts and my words this morning, um, that it would glorify you as well, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we started in verse 14, right where we left off last week, where Adam and Eve both kind of shifted the blame to somebody else for doing what they were told not to do. Um, and so we're picking up at the consequence of that, the result of them doing what they were told not to do in eating of the tree, and now they tried to shift the blame, and God is dealing to each individual the consequence of their actions. And he starts, remember, we start with Adam, and he shifts the blame to Eve, and Eve shifts the blame to the serpent. And so God starts at the serpent, goes to Eve, and then to Adam to deal with what the consequence of their actions was. Now, the initial, we go back to, to chapter 2, um, verse 17, the, the instruction when he said not to eat of the tree, he says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. 
For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And so the punishment of death is on them. Um, but there was further consequences than that, right? So the ultimate consequence is death. And I don't want to spend a lot of time. I hope you know Romans 3.23. But I'm going to read it. I should quote it, but I'll, I'll just read it. <laughs> um, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then we get to chapter 6, same verse, verse 23 in chapter 6 of Romans. says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. And that same, I don't know if you want to call it a promise, but that statement of God in Genesis chapter 2 of if you do the thing that I said not to do, the consequence is death. And he continues that throughout Scripture. And even here in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. I don't know. I, I've struggled with that for a while that well, they ate the fruit and they didn't die right away. <laughs> they lived hundreds of years. But they did die. And it was a settled thing. At that moment, they were going to die. They did what God said not to do. And so God was going to follow through with what he said the consequence was. They were going to die. Um, As we get to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20 kind of answers this. It's not just our physical death. It's not just the end of our, our life in this body, at however many years we manage, whether it's 94 and counting or, or sometime sooner than that. But yes, there's that death, but that's not actually the death that he was speaking of in either of these cases. Revelation 20. If I go to verse 12, it says, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The lake of fire? It's like... We talk about hell all the time, but hell is just a temporary place right now. When we, if a person dies now without Christ, they go to hell. But that's not even the end. There's a further judgment at the end of time when everybody that's there is going to stand before God and be judged again. It's not like there's a second chance here, though. It's like, is your name written in the book of life? It's a yes or no. 
And there's a judgment, and it's a just judgment. And they're cast into the lake of fire. It's like an eternal place of torment. And it says this is the second death. That's the death being spoken of in Genesis 2 and in Romans 6. There's, there's a death beyond our grave here on earth. That's something, as scripture describes, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a reason to fear God. It's because he is a just judge, and we are sinful people, and in his just judgment, he must provide the consequence for our sin. And the only way we could pay it is at that eternity in that lake of fire. Thankfully, Christ took our place on the cross so that we could put our faith in that sacrifice, which was sufficient to appease God's wrath for our sin. And so there's that opportunity to just believe in that gospel message that that he did that for us, that he was sufficient to do that for us. Now, so that's just kind of just briefly just dealing with this. He said you were going to die, and you're going to die. But it wasn't an instantaneous physical death. It was eventually and ultimately there is a, an ultimate second death for the consequence of sin. But each individual, Eve, the serpent, Adam, has a, a specific consequence for their part in starting um, this whole, just the, the sin being put into this earth and being passed on to all of us through this. Um, they each received a consequence that got passed down as well. And so we start with the serpent and work back to Adam. It says, again, verse 14 says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. Now, interestingly, it wasn't the serpent per se, it was that Satan had entered into the serpent. (laughs) And so, by allowing Satan to do that, the serpent gets a punishment. (laughs) Um, It describes the serpent here as the most subtle of all the beasts. It's like, look at how scripture describes Satan. And it is not how he's portrayed in Hollywood movies. There is not a guy that's all red and horns and a tail and a pitchfork and this picture of evil that we see. We go to various places in Scripture. You go to Isaiah and and whatnot, and and Ezekiel both describe, it's like Satan was the most beautiful of angels. And it also describes... Him, I'll, I'll turn to a couple of verses, but maybe before I get there, Satan is continually des- described through Scripture 
as a serpent. After this moment of entering into that serpent, he's still described as that later on. Uh, we can, I won't turn to Revelation, but as we go through uh, the book of Revelation, chapter 12, there's two or three places there, and in chapter 20, again, it, the Bible describes Satan as a serpent and a, and a dragon. Um, there's some kind of connection between those things in that description. But Satan doesn't present himself as an evil, scary creature. He presents himself as an angel of light. I have that verse. Um, do you know which, where? I should have it, but I don't see it written down here. Well, Jeff's looking for that. Um, Chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. So 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, yeah, described, it says, and no marvel, well, maybe we should back up just a little bit. Um, He's describing people. Verse 12 says, but, but what I do, that I will do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they may glory, they may be found even as we, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Now, I was looking for that verse that says he was trans- he's transformed into an angel of light. Satan doesn't present himself as a scary, evil, wicked being. He presents himself as an angel of light, like something beautiful and to be desired. But how does that look like in our day-to-day lives? Sadly, it's guys like me, kind of like me, standing up in front of churches and preaching, proclaiming who God is and presenting a false God, a false gospel, a different form of Jesus. Um, I mentioned there's, there's a, I saw there's a debate online between a gay pastor and a couple of conservative preachers and I said I can't even I can't even listen to it I can't even bring myself to let myself hear what this guy has to say because it's so obviously of Satan and yet he it's presented as this love and they present Christ in a way that Christ isn't an accepting of things that he will not accept and so they come out as an angel of light. They, they sound wonderful, 
they're, sound like they're ministers of righteousness. We need to be very, very careful who we listen to. Um, Jen and I got in the truck this morning. We're leaving pretty early these days, and um, CKPR puts on. Yeah, there was just garbage wherever we were, but so I was like, hey, I, I remembered um, whatever CKPR puts on um, Lutheran Gospel Hour or something like that. And so I turned the radio to that this morning. I was like, well, they're reading scripture. Well, this is better than anything else that's on right now. But as he was preaching and speaking, he quotes the verse that says, those who believe and are baptized will be saved. Well, he stopped reading at that point, and he says, it's our baptism that saves us. Our baptism doesn't save us, guys. You need to read the rest, the, the rest of what is written there. It says, and he that believeth not is condemned. It's the belief that saves, not the baptism. The baptism was omitted from the, the part that leaves you condemned, because it's not that that saves us. That's just like... <laughs> If we're going to talk about water baptism, that's just a step of faith and obedience that has nothing to do with our actual salvation other than being a picture of it. But I suspect that that verse is actually not talking about water baptism, but what happens spiritually in us when we believe. We're baptized into Christ through faith. (laughs) So we're not even talking about water baptism at this point. This preacher who is on the radio week after week Presenting a false gospel, sending countless people to hell. Because he's a minister of Satan, but he's transformed into a minister of righteousness. We've got to be very careful who we listen to and what that message is that they're preaching. And if they're preaching anything beyond faith alone in Christ's payment on the cross, his death is shedding of blood for our sins. If there's anything... On top of that, for salvation, it's a false gospel. Go through scripture and what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything beyond that has, is about discipleship and growth. It's not about salvation. Be very careful what you listen to and, and what you believe from people. Make sure that it matches scripture. I'm not getting far today, am I? <laughs> Sorry. If we turn over to Romans chapter 16, just back a little bit from Corinthians, the end, the last book of, the last chapter of Romans. I don't know if you still have your your spot in Genesis chapter 3, but I'll, I'll read the next verse here. It says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is part of the curse that is given to the serpent, technically Satan, and it's this enmity. This word enmity basically just means you, you become enemies is the basic meaning of the word. But between him and the woman, between her seed and Satan's seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. 
And this is our first prophecy, if you want to look at it that way. The first mention in Scripture that points us to the cross. <laughs> that, that there is some event going to happen in the future that is going to resolve this issue of sin that got started here in the garden. And this verse in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That's an interesting. It's like, we're repeating that statement about God is going to bruise Satan under your feet. There's, there's an ongoing um, fulfillment of that passage. It, didn't, it wasn't completely fulfilled at the crucifixion. There's more to it yet to be done, but it's God doing it. And God uses us <laughs> to accomplish that, to bruise Satan under our feet. Well, that's kind of nice, isn't it? <laughs> careful, careful of getting puffed up and proud over that because and thinking that you have some kind of power. It's God that's doing it. <laughs> Here's an interesting, as I was looking at this, I, just, I couldn't help but look at this passage. Um, go to John chapter 3. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, my favorite lessons in Scripture, um, largely because it was one of the first ones that I really saw how somebody put this lesson together and matched the Old Testament Scripture with the New Testament and actually showed me something of value here. Um, and so, so Matthew, or sorry, John chapter 3 If I start in verse 14, it says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Now, we could keep going, but we'll stop at that point. Notice there's nothing about what we do. <laughs> our actions, keeping laws, or, or anything like that. Nothing about baptism. <laughs> it's just, he that believeth is saved. You're given everlasting life. I'm just going to add this. If, you, if believing in him gives you everlasting life, can you lose it? 
by definition, everlasting life is something that can't be taken away. <laughs> right? By putting my faith in Christ, I'm given everlasting life. It's not something that I can lose. We could look at that further, but I'll just leave it at that. But I want to back up to verse 14. It says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I'm not going to turn back. It's in Numbers 21, I think it is. Is the story in the wilderness, and God sends serpents into the camp of the Israelites as they're wandering in the wilderness, waiting to go into the promised land. And people are getting bit by these poisonous snakes, and they're dying. And Moses goes to God looking for an answer, and God tells him to make an image of one of these snakes out of brass and lift it up on a pole in the middle of the encampment. And he says, if anybody looks on that brass serpent, on that pole, he'll be healed. And so now, here's the lesson, is that it's there. This thing is up on a pole in the middle of the camp where everybody can see it, but it specifies they have to look on it to be healed. They actually have to believe that something is going to happen. It's not just a matter of they can see it. It's a matter of they have to look on the thing to be healed. But Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Is it not a little perplexing that an image of Satan in the garden is what God gave them to heal them? And then even further than that, that Jesus uses as an illustration of what he's going to do on the cross for us. Doesn't that seem weird to you? It seemed very weird to me for many years until I realized that serpent is a picture of sin. It's an image of the original sin that entered the garden through Satan, through that serpent. It's a picture of sin, which is exactly what the Bible says Jesus took on him. Um, if you want to turn there, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He made him to be sin for us, what a perfect picture of what Christ did on the cross. Is that serpent, the image of sin, it says Christ became sin. As in, he took all of our sin, all of my sin, all of your sin, every person's sin, and it was placed on him. He became that sin and took the payment of God's wrath on him 
for that. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And he exchanges it. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a trade. (laughs) He took my sin that I'm supposed to spend eternity in a lake of fire for. And he becomes that sin and takes the payment for it. And gives me his righteousness, his perfection in exchange so that I can stand before God and not be completely destroyed. <laughs> and I can spend eternity with him in heaven. What a, what a fantastic trade that is. That's that picture in the wilderness of this serpent being lifted up and looking on that. Because that's what Christ became when he went to the cross for our sin. There is no better illustration than that. I'm a little shorter than normal, but I'm not going to, there's not time to do the rest of what I had here. So once again, I'm going to defer to, to the next week for the, for the other parts of this. But we'll just end with, with that. Recognizing this ongoing problem of sin in our world because of these events in the garden. And Satan entered a, a creature that was probably the most beautiful, the most alluring thing the most attractive creature in the garden. And he enters that to use that to turn Eve's heart and to to point her to do the thing that she shouldn't do. And that's exactly how Satan works against you and me. He presents himself as an angel of light. He's, doesn't God say this? (laughs) Right? That's what he did with Eve is, hasn't God said And then he makes it look like, look at this thing. Have a look at that fruit, how attractive it is. You're not going to die. All these preachers who carry a Bible and quote verses from the Bible, but take them out of their context, misuse them, they're doing the same thing. And he's using them in that same way. It's attractive and if I can stand here and promise you all good things that God's going to solve all your problems, if you'll just commit your life. Do you know, nowhere in the Bible does it say to invite Jesus into your heart. We don't invite Jesus into our heart. <laughs> we don't commit ourselves to him for our salvation. We don't give ourselves to God. He gave himself for us. And that's a subtle twist of the scriptures that is used so often to give a false gospel. And if you think committing yourself to God is how you get saved, it's not. Making as many promises to God to give yourself to him is not how we get saved. It's through believing in what Christ did on the cross, that his blood paid for your sin. So it's what he did for us, not what we promised to do for him that saves us. That's still Satan being subtle 
and using something that's appealing, that sounds good and attractive to us, to keep us from the truth. Let's pray.